It's Luke. Ooh, the voice is a little husky today. I don't know what's going on with that. Where's all this extra resonance and timbre coming from? I don't know. Maybe just consider this an ASMR episode. <laughs> this week on the pod, we talked to Deb Conklin, former Clallam County prosecutor and current pastor of two churches in Spokane, Liberty Park Methodist in Perry and St. Paul's United Methodist in West Central. In her almost 25 years as a person of the cloth, Deb has also served rural congregations in Deer Park, Davenport, and Rosalia. It's a sort of resume that, you know, just kind of has the whiff of a range interviewee, but there's an actual news hook here. Late last week, Deb declared her intention to run for Spokane County Prosecutor. And that, of course, means this is Range's first interview with an active candidate, and I'd love to know your thoughts. We've interviewed former candidates. We've obviously interviewed people in office. We have shied away to this point from candidate interviews for a number of reasons, basically all of which boil down to we haven't figured out how we want to do it yet. If we interview one, should we interview them all? If we do one race, do we need to do every race? That could quickly get tedious. It would also get very spinny, like political spinny, talking pointsy. Students of the range deep lore might remember me expressing disappointment about having talked to a communications director who wouldn't give me a straight answer on a specific tough topic. Since then, we've sort of issued a soft ban on PR people doesn't mean we won't sometimes get people clinging to talking points in these interviews, but it's one way of avoiding people whose job is coming up with talking points. There's obviously a class of politician for whom coming up with talking points is also a job description. And the reason why is that like one of the implicit promises of this podcast is that the conversation will be interesting, edifying, and spin is rarely interesting or edifying. And I'm almost certain lots of candidate interviews would also not be interesting or would be filled with talking points. And that just, you know, bums me out. We're over here trying to keep it nutritious, tasty, filling, plenty of nutrients. So again, we aren't abdicating this role. We're doing one right now. And, you know, honestly, we probably should have this role. This is a role we would like Range to have if we can figure it out. So again, would love your thoughts on how this one goes down and what you would look for in future interviews with local candidates. Actually, now that I think about it, you can go leave us feedback at rangemedia.co. And if you find yourself overwhelmed by the emotion of a news organization that actually wants your feedback as a reader and consumer of said news, you could consider becoming a paying member of Range, again, at rangemedia.co. It's all there for you. The feedback mechanism, the give us money mechanism, we've made it as easy as we possibly could. So this is our trial run. One question we asked ourselves when thinking about this, though, was, is this a person I would want to interview if they weren't running for anything? And I think in, in Deb's case, the answer is yes. Her history as both a prosecutor and a pastor allowed us to discuss competing models of justice between retributive and restorative theories. And beyond that, you'll also hear some pretty big differences between how Deb was trained as a prosecutor, only charging people with crimes you're certain you can get convictions on, for example, and the way we're used to hearing prosecutorial decisions being made in Spokane. If you think back to our Bail Project episodes and the episode with Cam Zorozua and Verla Spencer of The Way to Justice, you'll remember those advocates talking about prosecutors throwing every charge possible as a way of heightening bail and heightening pressure on that person to take a plea. Another big reason I wanted to talk to Deb is that she's running as a nonpartisan rather than a Republican, a Democrat, or even an independent. In Washington State, you can put whatever party you want to when you file. You might remember uh, from the presidential election cycle, people running as like Trump MAGA freedom Republican or whatever. Deb has decided to run under the banner of nonpartisan. Here's why that's interesting. There's this prevailing wisdom among the 
you know, political wonk class in Spokane, that the county is too conservative to elect a Democrat as prosecutor. So even the Democrats have been recruiting moderate Republicans for a few years now as a tactic. You'll hear Deb talk about it, but the decision to call herself a nonpartisan is not really a tactic. It is both. I mean, everything's a tactic, (laughs) but it comes from a belief that justice is a community-wide responsibility and party affiliations, by definition, divide communities. So she's bucking both the emerging wonk conventional wisdom and also eschewing the money that comes along with running as a major party candidate. And that's just an interesting decision I wanted to talk through with her. So yeah, is that nutritious enough for you? Well, it's not even everything. We talk about all of that and more with Deb Conklin, pastor and aspiring Spokane County prosecutor, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Deb Conklin, newly announced candidate for prosecutor of Spokane County. Thanks for coming on range. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Can we just start with a quick bio? I've I've known you for years as a pastor, but um, you're a lawyer by training and you spent time as a prosecutor in Clallam County in the 80s, I believe. Yes. What was that experience like? So I graduated from University of Washington Law School and did some clerking for some attorneys for a while, followed my husband to Colorado for a year. And then when we came back to Washington, the first like full-time serious job was a deputy prosecuting attorney in Clallam County. And I spent several years there, quickly moved from district court, which is misdemeanors and gross misdemeanors, and ended up doing mostly juvenile court and Superior Court with felonies. For most of my time there, I did all of the sexual assault cases. This was when offices were first starting to have special sexual assault units and to understand the importance of those units. Mm. And so that became one of my responsibilities was to do the sexual assault cases. And one of the things that was really important to me about that is I never had to tell a woman that we were not going to file rape charges because she was not credible. I never did that. Hmm. I was able to sit down in every referral we got and work with the victim and help her make an assessment about whether this is something she could go through. I never filed a charge that the victim didn't want filed because she didn't feel like she could go through it. And I never had to tell a victim that we weren't going to charge because she wasn't credible. And I think both of those re-traumatize victims. And so it's important to not do this. So then after I had my first child, I realized I needed a job with more flexibility. The the hours you put in as a deputy prosecuting attorney, the hours I put in (laughs) were astounding, were (laughs) staggering. And, um, you know, it's part of the caseload, it's part, you know, trial work. And so when my son was two, I just realized I needed to do something that gave me more flexibility. So I left the prosecutor's office, left law, took some time off, and eventually ended up going to seminary and becoming a United Methodist pastor. Mm. And 
a number of people said, so that's not a job that gets you your goals of having more time with your kids. <laughs> and yet it did, because even though it's long hours and it's a lot of work, it's more flexible. So when my kids got home from school, I was there. I might be next door in the church office, but I was there for them to stop in, check in, you know, plan right. the evening. I got to go to virtually every softball game my daughter played in, including state playoffs. I got to go to virtually every cross-country meet and track meet that my son ran in. I had that flexibility, which I would never have had in the prosecutor's office. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of jobs that give you uh, flexibility, though. So what, what drew you to the cloth? You know, it was interesting because I was sitting in my office thinking, but what would I do if I didn't do law? And I thought about teaching. I love teaching. I think I would have been an awesome teacher. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to have classes. And, and I thought about, you know, what I'm good at. I'm good at sitting down with victims and talking to them about their experience and helping them process that and deal with the trauma of that. Like I talked about, you know, rape victims. I actually turn out to be really good at that. I am really good at standing up in a courtroom and talking to a jury. Like my, my boss in that office said, when you give your opening statement and your closing argument, you will not use notes. You will not read them. You will stand there and you will look the jury in the face and you will talk to them. Hmm. And that translates into preaching. And one of the things that I get to do as a pastor is work on justice issues, which have been a passion of mine since I was in grade school. How does that look different in, uh, you know, sort of getting justice for victims of sexual assault as a prosecutor versus working sort of inside of a faith community on, on justice issues? How are those roles different? One of the biggest ways they're different is in the prosecutor's role, you're the one doing it. In the pastor's role, you have a chance to invite dozens, if not hundreds of other people to do it. So it's sort of like being a teacher. You have the opportunity to influence every student in your class mm -hmm. and to help them see criminal justice in the way that, that you think it needs to be understood. Right. Whereas if you were just working as a social worker, you're only one person doing that work. So it multiplies. It multiplies the impact. I wanna talk about the specific communities you've been working with in Spokane for the last 20 years, but in general, like what have you learned from working within those faith communities and in the larger you know communities that you're supporting in those churches? I have learned that most people in Spokane really care about doing the right thing, want to be good people, want to be helpful. We have a huge spectrum about how we think that's best done. <laughs> but, but I think most people's heart is in the right place. Mm. It's just learning how to be effective in the work we do. And one of the things I, I do is I've been trained through Greater Spokane Progress and some other groups in racial equity work. And in particular, understanding that we don't help a community take down the racial barriers and the racial disparities that we all know exist by calling people racist. We do it by helping people understand 
the history and the experiences of everyone hmm. and looking at how the historic practices that have at various points made life more difficult for different ethnic and, and racial groups have hurt all of us. So, so I'm actually currently reading My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Manikin. And I love how he talks about all of us have paid a high price for the ways we have treated people of color and people of different ethnic groups in, in our country. And I think all of us want to do better. Hmm. And the question is, how do we help us as a community to do better? Yeah. It's interesting you bring up racial equity. So you split your time between Liberty Park Methodist, which is in Perry, and St. Paul's United in West Central. It strikes me that both of those communities have historically been pretty poor, and both were historically redlined. What have you learned about what people in those communities need to thrive as you've done work there? The first thing they need is affordable housing. Hmm. In the 15 years I've lived in Spokane, the cost of housing has just become a serious burden for anybody who's in a minimum wage job, anybody who's older and retired from a blue collar job. You know, I've said all along, I can't afford to retire and live in Spokane because I live in a parsonage, which means I'd have to be able to buy a house or pay rent on a retirement income yeah. with no equity in a house. I can't afford to retire in Spokane. Um, so housing is a big deal. Food, you know, West Central is a huge food desert. I, until my fresh basket opened, um, Safeway was the store that you shopped at if you mm. lived in West Central. And having shopped at other Safeways in town, I walked in and felt the difference. It just wasn't as clean. It wasn't as well taken care of. Mm. It was like, oh, this is in West Central or you know, just north of West Central. We don't have to take as good care of it mm. as we do if it's on South Hill. Yeah, actually, I used I, I worked at Safeway when I was in high school and I would uh, the one on Monroe and Francis. So further north, which was a nice kind of clean store, a little older. But I would occasionally have to go down to the old Safeway on Third Avenue, which is now the grocery outlet. And there were literal like bullet holes in the windows. <laughs> and it, it was just a, a very different set of circumstances, even in the same you know, corporation. Well, and if somebody had shot bullet holes in the Safeway on South Hill or, you know, up in Shadle Park, you know, that would have been fixed quickly. Right. Yeah. So Perry's been gentrifying for a while. And I can't, I kind of feel like all of Spokane is gentrifying now, at least in terms of housing prices, you know, even in places where there the amenities that tend to lead to gentrification haven't happened yet. Housing prices are skyrocketing. Like, so how are your community members handling that? Interestingly enough, most of my folks don't live in South Perry really? anymore. Okay. Um, my longtime Liberty Park member grew up in South Perry, lived mm. in South Perry, and now lives out in the valley. Oh, gotcha. So they're still coming in to go to church, but... Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and I have one family. She grew up 
in this neighborhood and then, you know, went off to college, got married, had a family and they're coming to Liberty Park, but they live up in the North End because it's what they could afford. They couldn't, there's no way they could afford to live in South Perry. I mean, the Liberty Park Church is interesting because we have no parking lot. It was built to be a community church. It was built to be a church that people walk to on Sunday morning. And yet I'm the only person who lives close enough to To walk. walk. Wow. That's really interesting. Before you joined the St. Paul's Congregation in West Central, you worked at a church in Deer Park, which is kind of like my stomping grounds. I grew up in Chatteroy. What did that teach you about the differences and similarities? Because, you know, the, the role of county prosecutor, obviously, is the whole county. We have we have urban spaces right. and rural spaces in our county. What did it tell you about the differences and similarities between urban and rural communities? And especially like Deer Park, because like I don't I guess I don't my knowledge of Deer Park is not as good as it was when I was in school 20 years ago. But historically, pretty working class, historically, you know, it's a town and it's surrounded by rural space. So it's it's like small town America. What, What are the similarities and differences between those those communities? So the other thing about my history is I actually grew up on a farm in rural New York. Okay. I have served churches in Rosalia, which is 40 miles right. south of Spokane, a farming community, and out in Davenport, which is the county seat for Lincoln County. Home of the Davenport gorillas. Yes. Yes. My daughter was a Davenport gorilla. So small town is my history. Hmm. And the city is what I had to learn as sort of a second language. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I went off to college, I went to University of Pennsylvania in West Philadelphia. And I had a huge culture shock going from the farm to what at that point was a Ivy League ancient buildings in the middle of what had become a, a black ghetto, to be perfectly honest. White flight had just created um West Philadelphia at that point was almost totally black. And in many ways, a lot like West Central has been for a long time. There were, you know, bigger, beautiful houses that often had been chopped up into little apartments that people lived in. And in many cases, the landlords hadn't maintained the buildings Mm -hmm. very well. So so it was a learning process. And I actually helped start um, one of the first two emergency shelters in the city of Philadelphia. Salvation Army opened a shelter the same year we did. And it was just weekends because during the week there were other resources available back then. But every weekend, a team from the church staffed the shelter, volunteers, all volunteers. On Friday, we had a person, a paid person who did intake. Then we volunteer staffed the shelter all weekend. And then we had the paid person come back on Monday morning and refer people to agencies for assistance. We stayed at the shelter and we cooked in the church kitchen and served meals in what was left of the social hall. We slept on sleeping bags in the floor in the office. Today, the People's Emergency Center is an entire city block providing all kinds of resources for people struggling with homelessness and financial problems and employment problems. It provides just all kinds of resources. I think I was my question was going to be did your concept of justice evolve as you started working in faith communities? But it sounds like you started developing a concept of justice before you were ever a prosecutor in in the work you were doing as a student. Yes. Uh, I grew up in a family where things were not always fair. And somehow I developed this really strong sense of 
working on fairness and justice. Hmm. And it like informed virtually everything I did. I mean, when I studied philosophy, I studied philosophy of law, among other things. It was just always there. I was involved in anti-war movement. I was involved in women's rights, in civil rights of all sorts back in the 70s. What's fascinating for me, you, you know, you talked about the difference between, you know, Deer Park and, and Spokane. Deer Park is increasingly, unfortunately, becoming a bedroom community. That's um, what it feels like to me, yeah. The years that I was there, it really made some significant transition from very much a family community to a lot of young retirees. Oh, interesting. It became a very popular place. Like they started building these subdivisions for young retiring people. Hmm. And, and a number of those came to our church. The energy is really different in rural and small towns than it is in urban areas. And what I learned in Rosalia and Davenport was growing up on a farm is different than growing up in a small town. Mm. Growing up on a farm, we could just walk out the door and, you know, go for a hike in the pasture or go down and float stuff on the river or we had a five acre pond that we could swim in. When you're in a small town, you don't have those options. You also don't have a lot of the things that a big city has. Programs for young people. The Y, for example, you don't right. have a Y. Right. You don't have a, a community center. The one thing that Roselia had that was awesome is they had a, a community pool in the summertime, which was salvation for my daughter. She ended up on the swim team that kept her out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so small towns are really hard places for kids to grow up. Mm. And I remember being totally shocked when I was doing my clinical work in, uh, at university of Washington. And we were the first year that, that UW did any clinical experience because they were moving from the sort of ivory tower model of law school to the practical skill right. model. And I still remember this case where I had like a 19 year old and he said he'd never been in trouble before. He'd never been arrested. And he was totally terrified by the whole experience. And I was talking to the lawyer who um, supervised us. And she said, he's got to be lying to you. Nobody can grow up and to get as old as 19 without having any run-ins with the law. And I remember just looking at her totally shocked because I had had some experience with Johnny Gray, who was the one police officer in Windsor, New York. But my experience of Johnny was when he caught you doing something that you kind of weren't supposed to be doing, he just took you home and turned you over to your parents. Right. There were maybe three people in my entire high school that, ever went to juvenile detention. So it's a whole different world now because we, we arrest young people for things that kids did all the time when I was growing up. Right. And it doesn't mean that it was right. It means that the community made it clear that that behavior would not be tolerated. Yeah. So all of this varied experience, you know, growing up on a farm, moving to the city, 
starting your career as a prosecutor, moving to a pastor, what's brought you back and what's driving your desire to, to run for prosecutor now? I look at how Spokane County does the criminal legal stuff. And what I see is a system that before Larry Haskell ever ran for office, it is deeply embedded in our county system that we operate from a plea bargaining perspective, which means we file all possible charges and then we deal down to to what we really want. Mm -hmm. We over-incarcerate at arrest because we have all these charges and we have this bail schedule that says this is what you have to pay for these different charges. Even though the American Bar Association says the presumption should be that you don't incarcerate people pre-trial unless you have to in order to keep them from being a danger to witnesses, to the community, or to themselves. Hmm. That incarceration is not the preferred pretrial status. So having been trained by a prosecutor who says, we don't plea bargain, we don't overcharge, we don't file any charge that we don't have proof beyond a reasonable doubt at the time we charge. And the discipline for the deputies was when you file charges, you either get a plea to what you filed or you go to trial on what you filed or you get permission from the boss if something falls apart, if you have a witness that dies. But more likely, witnesses kind of disappear, particularly when you're dealing with people who are housing fragile, who are economically on the edge. Like I had one case where these four young men had gone out to a place out on one of the rivers where a lot of very poor white people lived. And they made their living by finding downed trees in Olympic National Park and cutting them up and selling them for firewood. That's pretty much how they supported themselves. So you know they did not have a lot. They lived in these trailers out in the woods. Right. And um, these four young men from town one time went out and were harassing this family and ended up shooting guns into the house where this mother had uh, a baby that was like two months old. Wow. And so she and her young kids and the baby are hovering under a table in the most inside room they can find. And um, when I went to trial on that case, I actually had the sheriff's deputies working on the case, brought several of the witnesses into the jail, gave them showers and got them decent clothes to wear to come to court to testify wow. so that they would be um, so that the jury could could actually, you know, hear what they said rather than be offended by the way they looked. Yeah. And I got all four guilty, but. I got a lot of pushback for using resources of the court system when the victims were just white trash. Hmm. And I just said, justice is justice. (laughs) We can't make our charging decisions based on who's good enough or who the right people are. And I think when you have a, a plea bargaining system, 
you just get caught up in making those kinds of judgments. Just to be clear on what we're talking about here, the, the plea bargaining sort of standard is you charge somebody with maybe five or six, the average I think in Spokane County right now is six different separate charges, whether or not they can stick or whether or not they would stick at trial. You just sort of throw everything into the the mix. And then as you start putting pressure on the person and, and their counsel to make a plea deal, you, you sort of offer the stuff that would have never stuck anyways as like, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll get rid of five of these charges if you plead to X charge. And you're saying the way you, you learned how to do it was like, you don't charge anybody with something you don't think you can make stick in a court of law. So it would only be that one charge or something. And then you would plead from, plead from there. Yeah. So, so the law lets you file charges based on probable cause, but you're never going to get a jury to convict based on probable cause. That's not the standard. It's reasonable. You have that, to yeah, prove yeah. beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. And so my boss said, your charging standard is you have to, before you file charges, have beyond a reasonable doubt. So for example, lots of times we would get police reports that looked like they could potentially be like a, you know, second degree theft, but there were pieces missing in the evidence. And so instead of charging and saying the officer will come up with it, you would send it back and say, so here's what you need before I can file these charges. Hmm. And by the way, one of the other things that I have a passion about is police oversight. So I was on the first office of police ombudsman commission in Spokane after the people passed an initiative, having an independent commission to hire and supervise an ombudsperson. And I have been to national training with the National Association of Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement, NACOL. I'm a certified practitioner of oversight with NACOL. And one of the things that I have said for years um, as I do this work is if we really want to talk about helping law enforcement do their job better, the prosecutor is a really important person in this work. Hmm. And we're not spending enough energy talking about how prosecutors can help with this work. So in the office that I worked in, if we got a police report, we either charged what was referred or we sent it back with a memo. Every time we didn't charge what was referred, we had to write a memo to the police officer and say either you maybe have this charge, but here's the pieces that you would need. And if you have those, write me another a supplemental report and we'll take another look at it. Or you send it back saying, you don't have, you don't have a first degree burglary, but you have a criminal trespass. I can charge the criminal trespass. Or if there's something that I'm not seeing, let me know what else you have. Or you send it back and say, you don't have a case. And often that would be, you don't have a case because your search was bad mm. or your arrest was bad. Mm. And so the evidence is going to get thrown out and we don't have a case. It's surprising to me that that's not the standard. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Sort of broadly, and this is the only horse race question that I'm going to ask because I don't like horse race questions. or I, I, don't, it's, I don't dislike horse race questions, but you're going to get a lot of those. So when Brian Beggs ran as a Democrat in 2014 and lost really badly, it was just under 20 points. He got smoked by Larry Haskell. After that, I've seen this theory develop among Spokane's kind of political intelligentsia and especially Democrats 
that running as a Democrat for prosecutor is a fool's game. You can't win in Spokane County as a Democrat. And there's been a push even among Democrats to recruit moderate Republicans to go against Haskell. This election cycle, that theory is going to be put to the test because we have three Republicans running, Haskell and two challengers, Stephanie Olson, who announced in February, and Stephanie Collins, who announced in March, and no Democrats. You have decided to run as a nonpartisan, which has not been part of the like the political intelligentsia chatter that I've heard for the last eight years at this point. So why was running as a nonpartisan important to you? Running as a nonpartisan is really important because I absolutely believe the prosecutor's office should be nonpartisan. And, you know, we have state law. That means that's not going to happen in terms of the race. The race is going to be partisan for the foreseeable future. But in terms of how the prosecutor functions, we absolutely can move to a nonpartisan prosecuting attorney. And I think we need to do that. And so I am committed to the ethos of not just using the label nonpartisan, but being nonpartisan. And one of the things that I have always been able to do is to cross what some people see as boundaries and relate to and have conversations with and have really good rapport with people from all different places Mm -hmm. on the political spectrum, on the religious spectrum. Certainly one of the things that, that I have really enjoyed in Spokane as a pastor is being in conversation with people from very different theological places and being able to do that in a respectful way. And I've actually been not particularly partisan in, in my politics. I have caucused with Republicans. I have caucused with Democrats. I caucused with whichever party had a candidate that was the one I wanted to support. Mm-hmm. So you've already talked about the ways you would charge differently and, and start providing police oversight. I'm going to, I guess I assume that's kind of part of your platform, how you tend to differentiate yourself from, from Haskell and the other candidates. What else do you feel like your candidacy sets you apart from the way Larry Haskell has run the office? Sentencing requests would start looking different. One of the things that we've seen for the last almost eight years is what looks from the outside like a policy that we lock people up as long as we can and keep them off the streets so they don't commit more crimes. But The reality is virtually everybody that we lock up ends up back on the street. Yeah, we have some, you know, life without parole, but the vast majority of people are going to end up back on the street at some point. And particularly with misdemeanors, gross misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies, which are the vast majority of offenses, If we simply lock people up and turn them loose, then many of them are just going to get in trouble again. Hmm. If we ask, what does this person need so that they can become a functional part of the community rather than becoming a career criminal, and how can we offer that to them? Then we can create more, more creative sentencing. So, for example, when I did juvenile court, I worked closely with the court commissioner and with 
the defense attorney to look at each young person and ask, how do we keep this person from becoming an adult criminal? Hmm. What do we do for that? Hmm. We had one, I think he must have been about nine because he was young enough. So you had to do an assessment before you could do a trial to make sure he understood the difference between right and wrong and between telling the truth. So he sent him to Echo Glenn for an assessment and the assessment came back and said that this child was very bright and very well behaved and really, really wanted to please adults. The reason that he had been involved in a series of burglaries is because his family were burglars. It's what they did. It's what he was oh. being taught to do. He actually was found on the roof of the jail at one point trying to break in to see his brothers who were in jail. Wow. So the evaluation said he's basically a very bright, highly motivated kid. It's just that in his environment, he's learning how to be a burglar because that's what his family does. So the challenge is... How do we help create a different environment for this nine-year-old mm. so that he doesn't join the family business? And we can do that with 20-year-olds. We can do that with older people. We have to ask, what are the circumstances of their life that cause them to be in the system? And how do we fix that? And one of the, the chicken and egg issues we have is, because we continue to over-incarcerate and because 70% of the people sitting in the jail every day are there on pretrial holds, pretrial conditions, mm -hmm. rather than being released on their own recognizance or being released with electronic monitoring so they can keep their jobs and keep their housing. If we created alternatives to putting people in jail, that money that we save incarcerating people can be spent funding those programs that we need. You know, we say we don't have programs, we can't afford programs. Well, jail is one of the most expensive programs we have. So let's look at how we can take the money we're spending incarcerating people and spend it creating programs that help them become contributing citizens in the community. Since the county has started tracking these numbers in 2019 after the JFA uh, report, an average, and this, this more or less matches national numbers, 70% of our county population pre-COVID, during COVID, post-COVID, even when we let a bunch of people out, on average, 70% of folks were pre-trial. And right now, as of March 2022, that was 540 folks less than 40% of whom only maybe 215 of those 540 were actually held pretrial for violent crimes. Everybody else was a nonviolent offender. So what I hear you saying is a large number of those people, you know, it's, it's something like a, it's 130 to 150 bucks a night to keep somebody in jail. It last time I saw the numbers, it was like 12 or 15 bucks a day to keep them on ankle monitoring and it's more or less free to release them on their own recognizance as long as, you know, they show back up, you know, to their next court appearances. 90 or more percent of any of those jailing dollars per day could be spent in diversionary and other services is what I hear you saying. Well, and people who support the current way of doing it talk about if you let criminals out 
and I think calling them a criminal before they've gone to trial is problematic, I would say. <laughs> well, it's it's a way of getting people to support the claim you're going to make by using coded language. Yeah. The claim is if you let them out before their trial, they'll just commit more crimes while they're awaiting trial. And while that can happen, does sometimes happen, the reality is with the ankle monitoring, if they commit a crime, you're going to know they were there and right. you're going to be able to, to solve that crime way quicker than you would have if you know, someone else had committed it or if you'd let them out on the personal recognizance. So the great thing about the electronic monitoring is people can keep their jobs pending trial, which means that they don't lose their job. They don't lose their house. They can continue to support their family. It means that if they get found not guilty, their life goes on. It hasn't been totally destroyed by these charges if they are found guilty, in the vast majority of cases, the sentence can be created so that they can continue to work and keep their job and pay their legal financial obligations. But when we lock people up pretrial, we destroy their resources right. before we've ever even proven that they're guilty. And, we're and when we're talking about populations that are low income, that often means not just, um, you know, a mom and a dad or a single person or a mom and a dad and some kids. It, it's often we're talking about larger sort of family structures that might include elders. And so if the person who's been charged of committing this crime is also one of the primary breadwinners that can throw not just a single person into right. like further precarity, it can throw whole family. The whole family might be homeless. Yeah. 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 And the unfairness of that is when you're someone with a lot of resources, you just go to the bail bonds office and get a bond or your family puts up um, some property as the bond. I mean, right. if you have resources, you don't have to sit in jail. Yeah. It's those that are already economically fragile that suffer under the current system. So right. in some ways, the overcharging, locking people up before they're ever convicted is contributing to the homeless problem. Right. And just to be clear, there's no reason if you had the means to post bail that you would want to just stay in jail. We're going to talk about racial disparities in a second, but when you're talking about 70% of people in the jail are being held pretrial, that means that 70% of your jail population is in that jail at that moment. Not that they're not going to get convicted later on, but in the moment that they're there pretrial, they're only there because they're poor. Pretty much. So the, the JFA report from 2019, it was funded by a MacArthur grant and it was conducted by the JFA Institute, which is why it's called the JFA Report. In addition to the, the poverty disparities that we just talked about, they found staggering racial disparities. Native American people were 6.5 times more likely to be incarcerated and blacks were 13 times more likely to be incarcerated than whites. And again, I know like prosecutors are just one link in the chain, but prosecutorial discretion is also huge as we've talked about. So how 
as the specific hinge point in this whole system, what can a prosecutor do to limit those racial disparities? Studies have shown that in many cases, racial disparity is created by biases that we don't even know we have, that that we don't understand, that we don't acknowledge. And so one of the challenges for eliminating disparities is to become more self-aware, to, to pay attention to ways in which I see a report about a Black person or a Native American person or some other person of color, and, and it makes a different impression than it would if it was a, a white person. There have been any number of studies that, that document over and over again that everyone, including black people, when we see a, uh, a black male between like, say, 15 or 16 and 30, we perceive them as bigger and darker and more dangerous than they really are. And so when we're working in the criminal court system, we need to be aware that that's working in us and work harder at making sure we look at things in a fair and just way. So we can call it, you know, being fair. We can call it a racial equity lens. We can call it a number of things. But if we're ever going to address what very much appears to be a a disparate treatment based simply on race, then we need to have standards that make it clear that it doesn't matter what name is on the police report. It doesn't matter what race is listed on the police report. They will be treated the same. And then we have to also work with law enforcement because the disparity starts with stops and arrests and referrals. So, so the disparity doesn't start in the prosecutor's office, but once again, and this is like the police oversight piece, the prosecutor can help law enforcement officers understand what might be operating in their thinking, in their perceptions, in their judgments that lead to disparities. And the prosecutor isn't a place to help the whole system look at where we are making those judgments and having them produce racial disparities. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that it's important who we elect as the prosecutor, because that person is an incredibly powerful piece of this system, is we really need someone who who realizes that this is an issue instead of someone like the incumbent who says, we don't need to talk about racial disparity. We don't need to have racial equity language in our policies and procedures. And that works the other way too when, so like since January of 2019, again, when this dashboard that the county keeps started, about 33% of white people were ordered to pay bail over $10,000, but black defendants, it was 45%. And what the county's data doesn't show or doesn't give us any insight into is, was that just like one for one, the same crime? Black people are getting higher bails for the same crime or are black people being charged with more serious crimes? That's 
a level of granularity the data doesn't give us. And it would be really cool if the county helped us out with that. But either way, so if there's a disproportionate number of people coming into the prosecutor's office or under their purview, and then on the other side of that, we're seeing that close to 50% more black people than white people are getting these massive $10,000 bail orders. The the way I understand this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you know the the defense is like, hey, we'd like you to release our client on his own recognizance, and the prosecutor's like, no, he needs a bail set at a million dollars, and then there's like a back and forth, and the judge is like, okay, it's going to be ten thousand dollars. That's kind of how it happens, yeah. Right. So then it just makes sense that if if the prosecutor's office is saying, hey, you know what, let's we agree, we, you should OR this guy, you should release somebody on their own recognizance, that's going to bring those those bail numbers more into line. So that to me feels like a place that a prosecutor could have a ton of discretion over disparity. Oh, the prosecutor has stunning discretion. I mean, people talk about bail schedules and most prosecutors offices have bail schedules, but mostly bail schedules get used at the time of booking. So it happens before we ever get to either the prosecutor's office or the courtroom, uh, an officer can book someone and say, here's the bail schedule if you want to post bail. And someone who has the capacity can just make a phone call and get bail posted and never even get processed into a cell. That's what the bail schedules do. When a prosecutor shows up in court at an arraignment, they're not bound by any bail schedules. And often... The argument for high bail will be about how dangerous the person's crime is. Right. Now, there are supposed to be processes for assessing each defendant before you get to the bail hearing. And those processes are supposed to look at what conditions of release will be needed to make sure the person shows up and to make sure that the community is safe, the victim is safe from any continued contact, and the defendant. So you look at how do you keep people safe until the trial, and how do you make sure the person shows up? What we've discovered across the country is one of the problems with getting people to show up is simply that many of the people in the system do not have stable enough living situations and do not really understand the legal process well enough to, to show up when they're supposed to. I mean, particularly if there's more than one charge, it gets confusing. And, you know, there's first appearance, there's arraignments, there's pretrial motions. And so many people caught up in the system are having trouble understanding it. So what we've discovered is that using cell phones in many cases to send people reminders right. to go to court is incredibly effective. Sending letters isn't because so many people aren't where you sent the letter by the time you send it. Right. They might have, to, if they've just been in jail for a month, they might've lost their house and they're in a, in a shelter somewhere or in their car or at a friend's house, couch surfing or yeah. People are highly transient and often mailing addresses don't work for reminders, but if we send text messages, they work significantly better. Right. So one way to make it more likely that somebody shows up is just to lock them up until their court date, costing 150 bucks a day, roughly. The other way to just send somebody a text reminder, if the county can buy itself an unlimited plan, would be free. 
or cheap. Yeah, it, it, it would not cost money. And it is very common and, and may explain, I, it's hard to get the data to document this, but it, it may be that one of the reasons that 70% of the people in jail are there on pretrial hold conditions is because once you are released, particularly if you're simply released on your own recognizance, if it's OR, then the first time you don't show up, the prosecutor says, okay, sit them in jail. They're not going to show up. They're not reliable. We need them in jail. So they're here and we need them. And there are all kinds of per- reasons why that person might not have shown up. Everything from they ended up in the ER room at the hospital to, you know, they didn't understand the date to the car broke down. Cause when you're living on a economically fragile life, you don't always have a reliable car or maybe the bus just missed them. I've, I've stood on a corner and waited for a Spokane bus and had one go by cause it was full and I had to wait for the next one. And that could be on our bus system where it's a half an hour to an hour between buses that could be the difference between being there and not being there yeah so you miss one appearance and the prosecutor says we have to lock them up so they're here and we need them whereas if we understood that there are reasons and we simply work harder to make sure that those reasons don't interfere the next time then we can continue to or them and provide the resources they need to be in court when they need to be there. Yeah. We're kind of going a little bit long. I've got maybe two sort of questions to end. One, I think you're uniquely qualified to answer as both a, a prosecutor and a pastor. America is a nation. We're founded on religious freedom. Our constitution reflects that. At the same time, so much of our legal tradition is steeped in English common law, which is very, and we just have like, I don't think it's controversial or unfair to say we have like sort of a Judeo-Christian, a Western Judeo-Christian flavor to our lawmaking. And a lot of folks would say they're at least, you know, culturally Christian across America, whether they go to church or not. (laughs) Why do you think we have such a deep-seated desire to punish rather than forgive or rehabilitate in our culture? I think that there are not as many people who want the sort of revenge retribution as we think there are. I think those are the loud voices. Hmm. For several years now, I've been doing a class for an EWU professor. So one class in in her um, whole term on the approaches to justice. So retributive theory, a rehabilitative theory, restorative theory. So those are like different theories of how our criminal system could work. And when I do that class and talk about the theories, the the values behind each of those systems and how they play out, it is fascinating that the vast majority of the students are attracted to a restorative justice approach, mm. approach that says when someone commits a crime, community is broken. This is not just one criminal and, you know, one or more identified victims. This is damage to the community. And in a restorative justice model, the question we ask is, how do we repair the broken community? Mm. 
And so instead of talking about, you know, revenge and, and people paying the price and having to be punished, we talk about how do we restore community? And the reality is when an entity uses a restorative justice model, in most cases in this country right now, the only places we're doing it are juvenile court, but there have historically been some fascinating programs with the indigenous people in Alaska because of their incredible um, traditions. But when we embrace a restorative justice model, the vast majority of the time when you sit down with the identified victims, the identified people who have engaged in misbehavior and some community members and talk about what it will take for everyone to feel like we've reached a resolution. It is stunning how often the identified victims aren't angry and aren't bitter and don't want revenge because they're invited into a a relational conversation. Hmm. So I think that the impression that we're a system that wants revenge and wants people punished is one of the many things that a smaller than we think group is very vocal and gets the bandwidth and gets hurt. But I think we as a community in Spokane County and we as a nation are much more willing to embrace the models that bring healing to community over models that continue to tear apart the fiber of the community. Last question, whether you make it through the primary or not, it's too early. Like this hasn't even started yet, the campaign. So nobody knows anything. (laughs) As it stands now, whether you make it through the primary or not, whether you win or lose, what's the core message you want to get across in your campaign you're hoping people will hear and we'll let you have the last word? The prosecutorial function is a really important function. It's a serious responsibility. And for the community, for Spokane County, to to experience itself as a healthy, safe community where people want to live, we need a prosecutor's office that is fair and that works for justice for everyone no matter what part of the county you live in, no matter what your socioeconomic status, what your um, mental health status, your race or ethnicity, we all want a system that treats everyone fairly. And we want a prosecutor's office that not only does that, but is seen to do that. And I offer that. Deb Conklin, thank you so much for coming on range. Thanks for having me. It's been a fascinating discussion. Take care. You too. Thanks again to Deb Conklin for coming on and sharing a little bit of her Saturday with us. And thank you, as always, for listening. Let me know what you think about our first ever candidate interview, both how you think and how you feel. (laughs) And have a great week.